This podcast is from the team at Healthcare IT Leaders, a national leader in IT consulting and workforce solutions serving top U.S. hospital systems. You can support our show by leaving a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening. Now here's our latest episode. I had one employee that said, you guys don't have enough leaders of a certain gender and a certain race. And I said, do you have 20 minutes? And I pulled up the dashboard and I was able to show that employee the stats, right? Because we have them. They come from our HRIS system. And I could sit down and the person said, I had no idea. And I said, well, thank goodness you asked, because now you can go and tell that to someone else. From Healthcare IT Leaders, you're listening to Leader to Leader with Ben Hilmes. Our guest today is Arianne Dowdell, Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer at Houston Methodist. In her time building up DEI programs at Houston Methodist, Arianne has demonstrated the transformational impact a healthcare organization built on diversity, equity, and inclusion can have both on its workforce and its patients. Arianne, uh, Ben Helmus, great to see you and welcome to Leader to Leader. Excited about this topic. It's um, it's a big topic. DEI is, you know, uh, uh, probably a lot of misconceptions around it. And so hopefully today through our dialogue around your role as vice president of DEI at Houston Methodist and, and then understanding a little bit more about your career journey, uh, our, our listeners will walk away with a, a unique perspective and, and some learnings that they can take, take with them. So Back to kind of the original point there, there are a lot of misconceptions around DEI. Each of those words, diversity, equity, inclusion, they're all big words in and of themselves. Right. We, we put them together and we create these roles. So I'd love to hear how you define it uh, sure. and, and how you describe it to others. Sure. So, you know, I think, you know, at its core, Diversity, equity, and inclusion, those standard textbook definitions of what the words are really is truly the same. So when we think about diversity, I always say to people, we're all diverse in some way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes people think of it just as race-based or just as your gender, but there's so much more to it, right? We think about socioeconomic status. We think about religion. um, There's a lot of different components to it. So that piece of diversity stays the same. From a healthcare perspective, when we talk about equity, thinking about our employees, right? So making sure that they have equitable opportunity in the workplace. So that's growth, right? Um, That's making sure their relationships with each other, um, working every day remains the same. And then the equity side for our patients, uh, making sure that we give our patients what they need to have the best health outcomes is truly at the center of everything that that we do every day here. Um, And then inclusion is just that inclusivity part, which manifests itself in so many different ways. So I think, you know, the textbook definitions for DEI remain the same, but I do think a lot of the outside noise that we've had politically over the past year have kind of jumbled up what that means and who it's applicable to, but it really is still the same um, for everyone. So I would say the definition is the same, but the application maybe has changed over the course of the past year as it's evolved and manifested itself in organizations that have achieved, you know, higher um, length of time of DEI programming in their hospitals and corporate America and nonprofit. You mentioned the word programming. Um, when I was at Adventist Health on the West Coast, we we talked about leading with love. And you guys have a program at uh, Houston Methodist. It's called Eye Care. And so when I was reading about that and kind of learning, there were a lot of similarities. So I'd love for you to share 
about your program, because I do think these things have to be programmatic and systemic. Um, you know, just having an office of DEI, you know, isn't isn't going to get there. So I'd love for you to talk about that program and, you know, how do you measure it? Uh, what, what, what do you think about when you think about success of the program? Mm hmm. So um, just to take you back, as you mentioned, our eye care values. So those are at the center of everything that we do on all of our name badges. Um, it has eye care. So you're familiar with what each of those letters mean. So just to walk everybody through that. So the I and eye care is for integrity. The C is for compassion. Um, the A is for accountability. The R is for respect. And the E is for excellence. And so when I was brought into this role in 2020, there was really a nice foundation of expectations, I would say, right, of how we operate as an organization. So as we built the DEI program, which I did from the ground up and was fortunate that I have a fantastic team of probably some of the most passionate folks about the work that they do, we knew that the center of our work was going to be framed around our eye care values, which a lot of institutions may have in theory, but not execution. Um, but I remember my first day at Methodist, people talked about eye care values. Values. And so five years later, that's what they still talk about. Uh, but when we think about what the programming is, we have a lot of different things we do. So if you hear about DEI programming in different institutions, you really need to be embedded into the departments throughout your organization to be successful. So I always say we don't have to say DEI every day to know the programming and the work we're doing behind the scenes is working. So we have a couple of things that we really focus on strongly. I can talk about a couple of them. Um, one of which is one of the things we focused on going into this year is making sure that we're hiring individuals that have both in, um, intellectual and developmental disabilities and working with organizations outside in our community because we talk about equity, but that means hiring different people of all skill sets and all levels. And so we wanted to make sure that that was something we focus on in all of our hospitals. So we've launched that programming with Best Buddies of America. We also partner with our um our spiritual care department. So we have a large spiritual diversity series, which is quite popular here, where we learn about different religions. We learn about uh, religion as it relates to diversity and inclusion for our patients and our employees. And we also do things like we're part of our new leader orientation. So we spend a third day of our new leader orientation showing how DEI works within our eye care values and those expectations of our employees, how that manifests itself um, as a leader. That's really important to know. Uh, we also have an employee resource group, so I'm sure you probably heard quite a bit about those in the past. Um, we have more than 2,500 employees that have joined in the past two and a half years, our ERGs. So we've surpassed what the normal uh, rate of participation is for Fortune 500 companies. And so wow. we have 10 ERGs. Um, and our ERGs do a lot of great work, not only with like mentoring and professional development, but now they're doing a lot with our community benefits office and working out in the community and doing work. So that's part of, again, when we think about our expectations for our employees and giving back, that's all part of it. Um, Let's see, what else do we do? We also have educational programming. So we used to call it training. Um, and I quickly learned that, you know, when you say train, Ben, it just... Um People feel like they might be doing something wrong sometimes, whereas I want people to become educated and to learn and want to be self-learners on how we can all improve ourselves every day. So now we don't say training. We have a fantastic team of three trainers that teach educational learning. I love um, it. Yeah. So those are just some of the things that we do. We stay very busy. We have a team of 10 um, and continue to grow. And so, you know, part of what I'll probably talk about at some point also are our health equity efforts mm -hmm. as well. So we are diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so that equity piece is also one of the major things that we're focused on as well as a department in our department. Well, I'm going to steal that shamelessly 
go from, <laughs> go from training to educational programming. It, 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 it makes it, a world of difference. It does make words matter, mm-hmm. right? So matter. I think that's really, really, really important. Um, and then you need, the unique challenges you have in Houston is one of the most diverse communities in our country. Right. Uh, you're, you know, the challenges you have are, are I think, on, on a scale that maybe others don't have. So a right. yeah, big, big job. Um, one of the things you're not immune to is workforce challenges, shortages, skills, et cetera. I believe, and I, I would love to hear your thoughts on it, that a strong DEI programming and kind of immersion in your org helps create a competitive advantage for you in the marketplace. Talk to me about how you leverage your work and working yeah. with um, your leadership to to really differentiate you to be more attractive and how do you better retain associates? Yeah, so when I started out in 2020, I was a team of one before I hired the first set of employees um, that joined the team about February of 2021. So it was just myself. But uh, one of the first things I actually asked was that we have a presence um, on our Houston Methodist website. And I didn't know whether or not that would be received well, but thankfully it was. And I was allowed to make sure that we had a page where people could look to see what our commitment was to DEI. Um, and we've actually built that up. I will say people notice that, you know, younger generations pay attention to whether or not organizations have DEI programming. And that manifests itself in different ways for different people. But we found right away, we were getting feedback that people noticed that simple landing page when they scroll down to the bottom of our Houston Methodist website. Uh, We've actually extended that. And so we work closely with our talent acquisition team. And they have a page that shows our commitment to DEI that talks about those employee resource groups, that talks about our mentoring programs, that talks about all these different things we do. Not everything has to say DEI, but we work again in partnership with a lot of these departments. And we get feedback from employees that seeing that and knowing that commitment is very important to them as they join the organization. And so, you know, it's great that we had it early on before it was necessary, but it is what people say they look for. People look for, can I go to a company where I can grow? And how does that manifest itself? Do you have leaders that are engaged in mentoring? So we have something called Mentor Match um, that we utilize here where leaders get partnered. It's almost like... Um, almost like a dating site in a way, right? Where you put what you're looking for from a mentor and then they match you up with a leader to see who is that best partner that you can have. And so having leaders that can speak to potential candidates about there's opportunities to get that, you know, that one-on-one relationship with the leader, that's what folks look for. And so um, there's a lot that we've done to make sure our presence is known. We also have um, specialized series that we've done with talent acquisition. So we did one for veterans Oh, wow. uh, we did one for persons with disabilities and other programming where we put it out on LinkedIn and we advertise for potential candidates to come and be able to speak to not only myself and other leaders in those areas, but employees that maybe fall into those protected groups. And that's actually been a hit as well. We've hired many employees as a result of those. So that's DEI in action. When people ask, what does it look like for me? That's what I would say. That's where we see our wins when we have those targeted focused events, conversations, outreach and presence that lead to a culture, the eye care culture that we talk about that people want to stay here for years and years. So it works. Wow. I, well, with your scale, just being able to connect everybody to somebody and then that, exactly. and that, that the connection is there's an, an actual algorithm to it. I love exactly. that. So, um, exactly. Uh, certainly would create opportunities for higher degrees of success. So I love that. Let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned health equity earlier. We all have inherent biases uh, and a lot of focus and attention on uncovering bias in the actual healthcare delivery 
um, aspects of uh, your organization. And so talk to us about that. What have you, what are you guys doing? How are you tackling that challenge? Cause I know it's a passion of yours. It is. It's a passion of mine personally and professionally for a number of reasons. It is um, health equity is really difficult to tackle. I'll say that, you know, everyone thinks there's kind of like that magic pill, like the Ozembek, right? For example, that if everybody could take it or get a swallow of it, health equity would be solved. That's just not the case. And so um, there's a couple of different things that we've done here. We started working on about two years ago. I didn't start during COVID because I wanted clinicians to be part of this, um, this effort. So the first thing we did was I started a health equity committee. We have about 20 individuals that are part of it. Um, they're both clinicians and non-clinicians because I wanted to have a balance. And we broke that group up into subcommittees. We talked about what are areas that we really want to tackle over the next year or two that start to address health equity. So we started out with three different groups. The first was a multi-visit patient population group where they looked at revisit rates in the ED to look at those patients that are coming in more than 20 times a year. And how do we make sure we're improving their care so they're not coming in that much? And Houston Methodist, if people are familiar with it, there's many hospitals around here. So that's a partnership that's done with some other hospitals because someone could be here one day and go to another hospital the next. So it doesn't change. We want their outcomes to still be improved. Um, the other thing that we look at are also some people call it social determinants of health. We don't. We say social drivers of health. Um, so we've looked at that. We've created dashboards to start looking at, um, you know, patients coming in based off of the wheel that many people are aware of before this was mandated by CMS now that has come about so we can track our patients, refer them out to some of our community partners. And now we're looking at those folks that we have sent out to the community. How often are they coming back? Are they coming back and still saying that they have these factors and they're in uh, impacting their health. So that's one of our groups. We also have a group that is called our uh, SPG and PCG groups, or that's our specialty care and our primary care groups. They looked at colorectal screenings to see do disparities exist? Um, are people being recommended equally for colorectal screenings? Of that, how many of those folks are actually going for screenings and what are their health outcomes? So we've built dashboards around that. And now we've actually added for this year um, managing access and readmission and literacy, because that's a huge part of health equity is people understanding, right, just their health in general, when they need to get screened, what the screenings mean. And so we're putting a lot of money and time behind making sure we're focusing on the literacy of our patient population. So that's one group. And then in addition to that, we actually have a cancer center research health equity group that's looking at making sure we have diversity in our clinical trial, diversity among our researchers, diversity for our community access areas that we go to. And so I wanted to make sure we're looking at this from a lot of different angles. Again, this is kind of just the start that we have, but with some of the requirements from CMS mandates that we have to, you know, report out, that is actually going to be a lot easier for us because we built some things already in that we're doing. Um, but I do think it's really important that we report what we're doing well, but acknowledge where we need to work in certain areas. And that's where that education piece also comes on. Um, so we're also working to educate all of our physicians. So we have a goal of educating more than 70% of our physicians on physician communication. And so we don't need to call it physician bias communication, right? Like that communication piece is really important. And so we're working with quality and patient safety and our physicians organization and other groups to make sure that we touch all points of the hospital, whether you're clinical or non-clinical in dealing with health equity, because at the end of the day, I say we're like a Venn diagram. We're all connected with our community, our patients and our employees at the center of that yeah. is equity. And we have to make sure that we keep the patients at the center of everything that we're doing every day. 
Wow, there's a lot there. Um, there's a lot. <laughs> but what I what I love about that is you're you're actually you know you're being data driven around this, and then you're taking yes. that information and putting it face up. And I, I'm I'm a big believer that, that you know when you give good people good information, they'll make good decisions and they'll grow and they'll learn and they'll you know um, yeah we don't know what we don't know sometimes. So exactly. I, I love that you're using data and information and sharing that openly to help bring people along. So that's uh, I'm really walking away with a really good nugget there. I'm sure you're, you've been, had some resistance that what you're doing is really hard, right? It's not a cakewalk. You have a really hard job, a big job. Um, and so how do you deal with, you know, the challenges you're faced with every day from people who, may resist, you know, some of the things you're trying to get done. Um, yeah. How, what, how do you work through that? I will say um, at Houston Methodist, I haven't had that resistance from leadership, which has been fantastic. I think there's more of a curiosity. Um, I think having conversations like this is so important for people to understand what we're doing. Um, one of the first things that I tell people is we never have, even before I started, done anything that's been based on quotas. And I know that for some companies that has worked. So I, I would never um, dismiss anyone that's done it. I just, I'm a former lawyer. I guess I'm just mindful about that stuff. Got worried that it could come back to bite us if we ever took that track. So I'm happy that we didn't. Um, but I always encourage the conversation and I show people data, as you said. So we've built dashboards where I can talk about, you know, the work that we've done and I can talk about our succession plans and I can show terminations of employees and where people are thriving. So for me, being able to show that data is very important to people that kind of question the work that we do, because then it's not about Ariane Dowdell, right? It becomes about the institution and what the institution is doing right and what the institution can do better. Um, so I actually welcome the conversations. I've had had one employee that said, you guys don't have enough leaders of a certain gender and a certain race. And I said, do you have 20 minutes? Hmm. And I pulled up the dashboard and I was able to show that employee the stats, right? Because we have them. They come from our HRIS system. And I could sit down and the person said, I had no idea. And I said, well, thank goodness you asked, because right. now you can go and tell that to someone else, right? And so at the end of the day, I think people really just want to be heard. And I'm okay if people don't get excited, right, about the work that I love to do every day. But what I want is maybe a leader that doesn't care about DEI so much, making sure that they're giving an equitable opportunity to somebody that deserves it. Wow. Right. So that is DEI. So that's what I care for, care about at the end of the day. If you don't need to go to my training, I'm OK as long as nobody complains that you haven't you know, paid attention to every candidate. So it manifests itself differently. Um, I say these conversations, I say it to everybody, a confrontation and a conversation are two very different things. I'm open to having any conversation, but I'll never have a confrontation about the work that I do. We have difficult conversations every day with leaders, with physicians, with employees. I'm a neutral party, so it's not about my opinion, right? It's about how do we get to a better outcome? So actually, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with having those conversations, hopefully that I can change somebody's mind to understand the need for why our department exists here at Houston Methodist. Wow. You, you almost had a judo move there where you used their, their strength <laughs> against them. You know, that's interesting. Uh, I love that. I mean, I love part of it is, is just leaning into it. Uh, you have to. Yeah. And, and so meeting them where they are and they're, understanding and, and then helping them move to a more informed space. Uh, really, really neat. You mentioned something that allows us to pivot here to career. 
Because so part yes. of every one of these leader to leader uh, podcasts, we, we talk about leadership and you have a very interesting career path and career paths interest me. It's like you, you start in broadcasting, you go to law school, you practice law, you somehow you make your way to healthcare, right. And then now you're in DEI leading, you know, a very complex, large scale organization on that journey. Unpack that. That's a that, that's an interesting career path. It's not normal. I will. When people ask me, I'm like, "Ooh, do you want to know?" You know. <laughs> but um, I actually planned to be a sportscaster. I sportscasted through college, uh, which truly my passion. I'm from New York originally, and had an opportunity to work in TV. So I worked um, at Core TV actually shortly after the O.J. Simpson trial. Um, had an opportunity to work directly with Johnny Cochran, who oh, became. Wow biggest mentors in life. Um, and so he was the reason I went to law school. I can say I never thought I wanted to be a lawyer, but he told me that I was going to grow older one day and no one will want me to be on air. So you need to have a backup. And um, so I decided to go to law school, actually planning to own a WNBA team. I never wanted to practice, wow. but I went on to do labor and defense work for a while and actually ended up working for the National Association of Black Automotive Suppliers. So that was really my first opportunity kind of getting up and representing folks that didn't have the same opportunities in Detroit. So my role was to work with the big three and work with suppliers to help them get opportunities. Um, and so I've really been doing this type of work for quite some time now. Um, I ended up going into higher education for about a decade. And my last role before coming um, here to Houston Methodist was actually at a university where I advocated on behalf of black and Hispanic students to make sure they had opportunities um, both as students as well as alumni. And so um, the work that I do has kind of been like a culmination of what I've been doing over the years, but now I get to do it every day, you know, is what I do all the time. Um, I am a child of a father that passed away from Alzheimer's, a mother mm -hmm. that had cancer. I have a daughter that has a disability. Um, and so for me, when I say it's personal and professional, I see both sides of it. I see the need as a leader, but I also see myself as, you know, a parent that hopes that, you know, as my daughter goes, gets older and she has needs, she's going to be in a healthcare system that respects her and sees what she needs as a person with a disability, right? Um, or a mother and a daughter that, you know, took care of her parents for 13 plus years and had to navigate the healthcare system with, you know, even though I had a father that worked in healthcare, you still have to have a ton of knowledge to be able to navigate that system, right, from start to finish. So for me, uh, my career has been a huge part of it, but that personal side as well has made doing my job every day, I would say, probably a little bit easier in some ways because I've been through it and I still go through it all the time. That's interesting. I mean, you've taken your passion inside of any kind of role you've ever had. And and I would characterize you as a, a you know, a lightning bolt change agent, Um you know, that's used the platforms that you've had to really drive meaningful change. So congratulations on that. That's yeah, really, really cool. Um, uh, so you mentioned Johnny Cochran. He was a mentor. Uh, yes. How crazy is that? Uh, so, I mean, you know, in, the, in that sense, but I think mentorship is, you know, an incredible thing in a person's career. I've had some incredible mentors along my path. Um, Obviously, Johnny Cochran, to you, great mentor. Do other mentors come to mind? I mean, specifically in your career path that helped you kind of along the way? I'd love to hear about those people. Absolutely. Um, I had a, I still speak to her. Her name is Martha when I lived in uh, Richmond, Virginia, and knew that I really wanted to 
delve into a bit more for myself from a leadership perspective. And she was the person that really got me fired up, you know, um, was the woman that said, you don't have to be the quietest person in the room all the time and, and help me navigate what was a difficult situation at times trying to be a black female I'm trying to go into leadership. And this was a white female that guided me through my career. And so um, I'm deeply indebted to Martha for just kind of showing me how to be tough and respected, right? So um, I think it's very important to be liked. But at the end of the day, I think it's more important for someone to respect you. Um, And so I had to learn that over the years. And I did learn that from Martha. And so, you know, I had the feisty side of Johnny. I had a Martha. And then I had my parents, quite honestly. My father uh, was a lawyer, um, also worked in healthcare and human resources. And so I saw how he treated, you know, we think about our eye care values and we say um, here at Houston Methodist, every person is a person of sacred worth. I would watch my father walk through the hospitals at um, Sloan Kettering in New York, and I would see my father speak to everyone as an executive. There was not one person that he didn't speak to. And that always resonated with me, you know, as I came up through leadership, it was making sure that I recognized everyone and the importance everyone plays. And my mother was the same way. She was an educator. And so she always taught us to be very curious Um, And to make sure that we learn something every day and that we grow every day. So I was fortunate that I had parents that were my mentors, you know, that I genuinely liked as people, aside from having great parents. But um, there's definitely been people I've watched along the way. And I sometimes say, like, your mentors are sometimes the bosses you don't want to be, right? Because you learn... (laughs) learn what you don't want to do. So I've had a couple of those, but I'm thankful that I had those opportunities because I think it made me a bit more compassionate um, towards others, right? And giving people grace. And so I'm I'm fortunate that through my career with all the twists and turns, I've had some really great people in my life. I wouldn't change a thing as nutty as it's been. No, that's awesome. That is really awesome. So just being able to one, observe your parents from a very early age and Mm -hmm. watching them interact and on to getting a little fire in the belly from, from Martha and Johnny. Um, right. That's really, really neat. That's uh, I've had a lot of great mentors as well. And each of them just play a huge role in my life still today. So I, I applaud that. That's really great. Lastly, let's land on something. You know, there's a lot of people that'll listen to this that uh, are considering a, a role in DEI or maybe want to get into DEI leadership. Um, what what would you tell them? I mean, what, where, where do they start? What skills? What you know? Not everybody's going to go from broadcasting to law right. to events. To, you know, to your path. But if you could tell somebody what uh, some advice on what they need to be thinking around around that career path, what would it be? I think you have to understand the landscape of doing this type of work. Um, so most DEI officers don't stay in their role for more than eighteen months. I think that was the last thing I read because it is truly exhausting work. Um, So I've definitely surpassed that, right? Going into year four in my role. So I think you have to understand what comes with this. Um, You have to have a passion for it. You have to have a passion to drive change, but understand that it doesn't happen overnight. Um, And so I think you have to be realistic about goal setting leadership. So say you're a a one person shop that just wants to start something, make sure you have, you know, your leadership, the board that's committed to working with you. You know, I have Dr. Boom, I have the board that I report to and others. And so, you know, having their support makes it easier um, to get that buy-in piece. And you have to constantly educate yourself. Um, You know, going back to having those conversations, you have to know what people that don't think like you are thinking, and you have to be okay with that. 
So you can build a team like I did of folks that never had DEI knowledge, but I tell you, they've got a passion that you can't beat and they're excellent at what they do and they're constant learners. But I would say, you know, have a plan. What is that plan? Have buy-in from your leadership and know that if this is what you want to do, you can absolutely do it. But it takes a lot of time, you know, takes a lot of energy, just like any job, but you get pulled in different directions. And so finding that balance, you got to know when to turn it off when you leave at the end of the day, because it can become all consuming quite easily if you let it. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, it's just this chronic thing with you all the time. And to be able to compartmentalize that, uh, that'll be our next podcast. We'll talk about how do you do that? Because I I think that's a really hard thing to do, especially executives and leaders who are really passionate about what they do. And how do you turn that off and and create balance in your life? Um, So, well, hey, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Uh, Really, it's awesome getting to spend a few minutes with you. You have an incredible challenge. Uh, you you face it every day with incredible uh, energy and dignity. And I, I love that. So Houston Methodist is lucky to have you. And uh, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks so much for having me. That was a powerful discussion with Arianne. She is inspiring and her DEI program at Houston Methodist can be a model for others. Here are my top takeaways from our conversation. One, A strong DEI program can help address workforce shortages. Young people, in particular, seek out employers committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Two, mentoring is a great way to involve hospital leaders in DEI efforts. Ariane has had some pretty impressive mentors in her own life, including her parents and the attorney, Johnny Cochran. Three, I love what she said about having conversations, not confrontations. Her willingness to meet critics head on and listen to them is a key to her success. Four, DEI leadership can be stressful and all-consuming. It's important for those involved in DEI work to build support systems and find balance. So, what did you think? What were your big takeaways from the episode? I'd love to hear from you on our social media channels or drop me an email from our website at healthcareitleaders.com. Until next time, I'm Ben Hillis. Thanks for joining us for Leader to Leader. To learn more about how to fuel your own personal leadership journey through the healthcare industry, visit healthcareitleaders.com. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any insights, and we'll see you on the next episode.